Welcome to Rocking Your Prize. Why don't countries default on their debts? Default used to be fairly common, but it is no longer. Instead, people take the hit. What's changed and why? To answer this question, I'm joined by Dr. Jerome Roos, who is an LSE Fellow in International Political Economy. Welcome, Jerome. Thank you so much for having me on the show. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is a really interesting puzzle. Um, how have others tried to explain why countries no longer default? Well, I mean, like you said, I mean, it's a puzzle that has been there for a while. It's not something that, you know, I came up with in the book myself. Mm -hmm. It's actually something that I discovered as I was delving into the literature. Um, that's That's been something that scholars have been engaging with for a long time. Mm -hmm. And actually, if we go back to the early 80s, we see a whole body of literature emerging in economics, which identifies this fundamental puzzle at the heart of sovereign debt by looking at um, the kind of setting in which international debt, especially external debt, um, uh, is accrued, mm -hmm. right? So you accrue international debt by borrowing from creditors who are based in another country. Yep. And that raises a question because repaying that debt is effectively a wealth transfer from the debtor to the creditor. Yes. And since there is no such thing as an international government uh, or world government or, let's say, you know, an imperialist power mm -hmm. that is capable of enforcing the contracts, of basically forcing these countries to actually repay, um, that raises the question why these debtor countries willingly engage in these resource transfers back to their creditors. So actually, if you look purely from a neoclassical perspective at what a debtor does, it's kind of puzzling because we would assume a self-interested debtor to simply accumulate as many debts as it you know, possibly mm. could and then to repudiate those debts in total mm. and simply not to repay any of them mm -hmm. at all. But that's not what happens. Actually, what we see is that there's a tendency, despite a vast increase in the amount of international debt, to repay and that that tendency has increased significantly so that today the incidence of sovereign default is much lower than it has been at any other time in history. So just to get back to the uh, sort of the explanations mm. for that. Okay, so let me guess one. I want to guess yeah. one. Is it because I need to pay it back because I want to retain your good favor? I want to make my good credit rating. Well, that's precisely the first sort of explanation mm. that came up, right? So that's sometimes called the reputational uh, approach mm -hmm. or the reputation hypothesis. Mm -hmm. So that goes back to a seminal paper by Eaton and Gersowitz published in the early 1980s. They're the ones who identified this puzzle. Mm. And their answer was, well... Countries want to retain their reputation mm -hmm. as good borrowers. They're afraid that uh, if they don't repay, they will be forever excluded from international capital markets and will never be able to borrow internationally again. Mm -hmm. uh, that obviously would leave them at a huge disadvantage internationally sure. because they wouldn't be able to borrow to smooth over uh, periods of alternating mm -hmm. income. Right. So that's kind of their fundamental model. Mm -hmm. um, but that fairly soon um, was criticized by a number of scholars who pointed out that there may be other ways to insure yourselves from adverse shocks on the economy. And um, in, a, in another seminal paper, uh, two scholars pointed out that in fact, um, it may be possible to simply save up the money that you borrow and then to invest it in foreign capital markets and to gain interest on that and actually to use those proceeds. Oh, I see. Right. There's another way of getting the money. Right. There's another way of getting the money. So mm. you won't actually have to um, you know, uh, borrow it, you might be able to simply save it. Um, and, and, and that way, you know, you, you would be able to still smooth these mm, yeah, uh, yeah. periods of, mm. of alternating income. So this school of thought actually said that there has to be some other kind of penalty for yeah. defaulting. Mm. And so they started focusing on the role of sanctions mm. and really looking at two or three different types of sanctions. Mm. Um, the most prominent ones in the contemporary period would be either trade sanctions, mm -hmm. which would be pursued not by the private creditors, but by the creditor states. Yep. So there's a fear, for instance, potentially, that if Argentina were to default, that the United States government would impose trade mm -hmm. sanctions mm -hmm. in response. And the other type of sanctions that we can imagine would be legal sanctions. Mm -hmm. So that's actually something the private creditors do, is they pursue legal action uh, against the defaulting government. And then historically, there's the argument that there have been what are sometimes called super sanctions, which really are military sanctions uh, in the form of either invasion or the establishment of um, international financial control or, you know, the sort of typical gunboat phenomenon that we saw in the early 20th century. So that's something that um, these scholars suggested. But again, there's a number of problems with that. Mm. Um, and first of all, when it comes to trade sanctions, we see that they don't really happen. So empirically, we don't see creditor states pursuing them. Oh, really? 
Um, and when it comes to these legal sanctions, what we actually find is that, uh, well, that's precisely the problem, right? There's no international government sure. to enforce them. So you can pursue these legal uh, these legal lawsuits as, as much as you want, but it's very difficult to actually get, even if you get a, a favorable ruling, to actually attach the assets of the debtor and to ensure that uh, these are returned to the creditor. So you're saying there aren't actually strong economic cent- incentives to pay back? Well, I mean, there might be, but they have to be located elsewhere, it right. turns out, right? So you have this reputational approach that has problems. You have the sanctions mm-hmm. approach that has problems. Now, there's a different school that argues that, in fact, there may be um, institutional reasons. Mm-hmm. So that's sometimes called the democratic advantage school or the institutional school, which argues that it's actually democratic institutions that protect creditor rights that compel debtor countries to repay. And, um, I mean, a very famous argument made, of course, by Schultz and Weingast and um, uh, uh, by North and, and, mm. and Weingast. Um, but actually, we see that there's a similar problem there uh, in the sense that, first of all, the empirical data doesn't really support it. But second, also, theoretically, we find that that's a mechanism that might work for domestic debt. Because yeah, yeah, domestic sure. creditors are protected by mm-hmm. courts domestically, and they're protected mm-hmm. perhaps by these private property rights. But again, it doesn't explain that international lending. Because right? you have no global right. democracy, for example. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then there's the fourth explanation, okay. which I sort of incorporated to my approach, which is the most recent body of literature, and I think the most promising one. And that focuses on the spillover costs of default. And that argues that perhaps it's not so much the government that faces the costs of default, but it's actually private actors inside the debtor country. So it's banks inside the debtor country, it's um, pension funds inside the debtor country, or simply credit-dependent businesses in the, in the debtor country. And there, the argument is really that a failure of the government to repay has knock-on effects on the domestic circulation of credit, on the ability of firms inside the debtor country to obtain that credit. And uh, ultimately, uh, you know, that sort of series of Spillover effects could lead to a situation in which unemployment rises, in which um, you know poverty shoots up, and all kinds of nefarious socioeconomic consequences ensue that would in turn cause voters to turn against their governments, and then um, would you know uh, incentivize these governments not to default. Uh, so that's kind of the spillover cost approach. So what you're sort of saying is that the previous approaches kind of construe the state as a unitary actor. But you're saying, actually, we need to look at the domestic politics of international political economy and recognize there may be constituencies within the, the debtor country that have a self-interest re- reason to support repayment. Exactly. So that's, I think, fundamentally, if we start criticizing all of these approaches for, you know, their sort of uh, shared shortcomings, it's mm. precisely that. It's that they conceive of debtor countries as unitary actors, mm-hmm. as, um, um, you know, re- as governments as representing a national interest. And uh, that national interest not being problematized. It's yeah. simply a sort of coherent national interest. And actually what we find is that different actors inside the debtor countries will have different interests with respect to debt repayment. Sure. Some will stand to benefit more from repayment than others. And some will stand to benefit more from non-repayment than others. So you talked about financial institutions. Why, why would... Can you tell me why uh, why a, a domestic actor would have a self-interested reason... A self-interested, yeah, reason for repayment? Well, I mean, what you find is that a lot of the time, domestic financial institutions are also exposed to their government's debt. Yeah. And governments will find it very difficult to, to actually discriminate between the debts held by foreign creditors and the debts held by domestic creditors. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So while you may want to default on foreign banks, uh, your domestic banks may also suffer as a consequence. Right, okay. And obviously what that leads to then is, um, on the one hand, a domestic financial crisis, but on the other hand also sustained pressure from the people running these financial institutions and owning these financial institutions and the people who have an interest in the stability of these financial institutions to stop the government from defaulting. So uh, what we find, for instance, in the Greek case Mm. is that there was a very large exposure of domestic banks and domestic pension funds to Greek government debt. Mm. And because they owned a lot of government bonds, a default by the Greek government would have triggered cross-default clauses also on these bonds. So even if they wanted to purely default on the foreign creditors, it would have had these knock-on effects right, on the domestic see, financial I sector. See. And it's the strength of that domestic financial sector which is important. Absolutely. And I think that that, that strength has to be understood in two ways. Mm-hmm. One is sort of the political leverage that mm-hmm. these financial mm-hmm. institutions themselves command. But second is also the fact that um, ultimately a financial collapse is in no one's interest. So you find that even, let's say, in many cases, even people who don't have direct exposure to government debt because they don't own these bonds themselves, Mm -hmm. they may in some sense be 
liable to the fallout of yeah. the default economically because their deposits are in these banks that might topple in the event of a government default. So they will oppose a default as well. Now this of course is a, is a dynamic question because that position that people have, that ordinary people might have, yeah. might change over the course of a crisis right. when austerity begins to bite. Yes. And when they begin to realize that actually repaying the debt requires these austerity measures that in the long run leave them severely impoverished. So there may be a trade-off here that over time, ordinary people begin to fear the consequences of austerity more than the consequences of a default, and may therefore switch their right, preferences towards you. a pro-default position. Okay. And so that's the interesting thing that I'm trying to look at, is what is the mm. moment at which that might occur, yeah. and what are the struggles and conflicts mm. that emerge around that? The domestic that struggles of sovereign debt uh, default. Okay, yeah. so in the book you argue that there are three enforcement mechanisms mm -hmm. that, have hold, that have held historically, these mm -hmm. three big trends that we can sort of see across the world or across all times. Talk me through these three enforcement mechanisms. All right. So basically what I'm looking at is um, the ability of creditors to withhold credit from a borrowing government mm -hmm. and thereby to inflict these damaging spillover costs mm -hmm. that I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. And to understand why creditors are able to do that, we have to understand these the way these mechanisms work, yes. right? So the three mechanisms that I look at specifically are what I call market discipline, conditional lending, and the bridging position of domestic financial elites. And let me just break them down yeah. like a little bit, right? So the market mechanism one is perhaps the most um, sort of you know commonly used in the literature in the sense that if you have financial markets. Um, providing credit, a government will want to please those markets to ensure that they have access and mm -hmm. retain access to mm -hmm. that credit. Uh, but the crucial question, of course, is when is that market discipline stronger and when is it weaker? And a very common explanation in the literature is to argue that market discipline is always stronger when markets are sort of perfectly functioning and that requires markets to be decentralized and dispersed. But actually what I find in my research is that the opposite happens. is actually the concentration and centralization of credit markets that leaves governments increasingly dependent on an ever smaller yep. number of financial players to provide those debts. When they don't have an alternative, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So the capacity of a small group of private creditors, what I call a creditor's cartel, which yes. is a term that emerged from the 1980s debt crisis, mm. um, the, the creditor's cartel is able to withhold further credit much more easily because it's a smaller group of lenders involved. So they can sort of work together mm -hmm. in refusing to extend further credit in the event of a default. And precisely what we've seen in the decades since the 1980s is that the market for, on the one hand, bank loans to government in the 1980s, but later also um, the, the market for government bonds has become increasingly concentrated. And there's a smaller and smaller number of large banks involved in underwriting in them, and there's a smaller and smaller group of financial actors involved in holding them. So if we actually compare the bond finance that we have you know, today in the case of the Greek crisis, mm. for instance, to the type of bond finance that we had in the 1930s, mm. we see a huge contrast. Oh, really? In the 1930s, the bond markets were very dispersed and decentralized. So, you know, when most of Latin America defaulted during the Great Depression, uh, there were over a million U.S. bondholders who were affected because the, the bondholdings were distributed throughout U.S. society. There was a lot of investors who held that debt and they found it very difficult to retain a unified creditor cartel because there were so many players. But what we've seen since the 80s is that, you know, the international credit markets and the international bond market have become increasingly concentrated. And fewer and fewer players are now involved in that lending. And so in the Greek case, for instance, the vast majority of bondholders actually ended up being a very small circle of European banks that ended up holding these government bonds. And these banks found it much easier to coordinate collective action than the bondholders of the 1930s and to refuse further credit in the event of a default, but also to sort of negotiate as a as a unified creditor cartel in their dealings with the government. So it's the more the creditor cartel is unified and they've overcome their collective action problems that the debtor country feels, well, I've got to repay because otherwise there's no other source of credit. Exactly. So that's our economic incentive argument, which was a little bit similar to before. Exactly. Right. So that's kind of like the, the first mechanism. Right. right, yes. But the crucial thing is that that mechanism is it's necessary but insufficient. Mm. Um, and the reason that it's insufficient is that even a very concentrated creditor cartel ultimately cannot prevent a country that is about to default because of for instance, lack of foreign exchange mm -hmm. or, you know, sheer liquidity issues. Mm -hmm. um, they cannot prevent that country from defaulting because they have an incentive to withdraw from it. 
So even when, you know, there's just like 10 or 20 European banks involved in lending to Greece, mm. when the crisis comes to a head in early 2010, there's a concern that Greece might default, all of them pull their money out at the same time, nevertheless. And that might lead to a Greek default anyway, mm. even if it's not sort of, you know, what either the creditors or the debtor want, mm. it might be a consequence anyway. So you need a backstop to that market yes. mechanism to be able to prevent those kind of disorderly defaults. And ever since the 1980s, that role has increasingly been fulfilled by the International Monetary Fund, which has increasingly assumed the role of an international lender of last resort. And nowadays, we almost take that role for granted, but it's important to recognize just how novel it is in historical terms, because the IMF didn't exist in the crisis of the 30s or any other crisis before then. And it didn't fulfill this role of an international lender of last resort until the crisis of the 80s. So if you actually, actually look at graphs, uh, depicting the amount of IMF credit mm. that has been disbursed since mm. the 1980s, you see a spectacular increase, mm. especially in the wake of the global financial crisis. So the role of IMF credit, of this type of conditional emergency lending, uh, has become increasingly important. Now, the crucial thing that distinguishes this type of official sector lending mm. through the IMF from the type of market-based lending mm. um, uh, that sort of constitutes the first mechanism mm. is that it is conditional. Right? So these are conditional loans. They're made conditional upon very punitive reforms and austerity measures in the debtor countries. And these reforms are basically structured around the freeing up of domestic resources for foreign debtor servicing. So on the one hand, fiscal austerity uh, is meant to basically liberate funds from the government budget to repay foreign creditors. But on the other hand, there's a host of interventions into the domestic economy, like the lowering of wages, the cutting of pensions, the um, uh, liberalization of labor markets that are geared towards improving the competitiveness of the domestic economy that would increase the capacity of that country ideally to repay mm -hmm. in the long term as well. So that is a, a crucial mechanism. And, and that second mechanism, the role of the IMF, has been underwritten in very important ways by the dominant creditor states. So the United States government uh, played a crucial role in the management of the crisis of the 1980s and 1990s. And of course, the European creditor states and the European Central Bank and the European Commission played a very important role in managing the crisis together with the IMF in the Eurozone. So that's kind of the second mechanism that's absolutely crucial, but it fundamentally hinges still upon that same basic mechanism, which is the capacity of that international lender of last resort to withhold further credit if there is a case of non-compliance. Yes. And again, the fear uh, for the debtor country is that that would lead to all kinds of disastrous spillover mm -hmm. costs in mm -hmm. the short term. Yeah. Right. So that's the first two mechanisms. Mm -hmm. Both of those are international. Yes. Um, there's a risk in sort of only looking at these two that you'll end up concluding that compliance is simply imposed from abroad. Mm. And I want to make it very clear that that's not the case. There's actually uh, a very important role to be um, attributed to domestic elites inside the debtor countries as well. Mm. So if we look at what has happened since the 1980s is that financial elites in particular, but also uh, political elites, especially with more technocratic focus, have played an increasingly important role in the management of debt crises in the sort of peripheral, um, in, 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 the, in the developing world, mm -hmm. let's say. And uh, the reason for that is that their power has been strengthened as a result of what I call the growing credit dependence of these countries on international credit. So when you look at a country like Mexico, for instance, which was the first to go into major crisis in the early 80s, we see that the period leading up to the crisis of 82 was a period in which um, domestic financial elites and technocrats grew increasingly powerful as a result of the government's growing dependence on uh, credit provided by Wall Street banks. And the reason was that these financial elites were able to fulfill a bridging role towards international finance because they could basically gain the trust of international creditors, they were able uh, to borrow on better terms than their more, let's say, democratically responsive counterparts. So you have a national popular type of left-leaning coalition in Mexico at the time, which favors a default or at least a heterodox policy response mm. to the crisis. And whenever these people gain in power and whenever these people make public statements that go against, you know, uh, the expectations of international creditors that the debt is to be repaid, you see borrowing costs increase. And you see that there is a concern among policymakers that these type of statements will negatively mm. you know, affect the domestic mm. economy. And so as a result of that, over time, there's a gradual internalization of debtor discipline because it, these sort of financial elites and these technocrats 
um, they gain influence within the domestic uh, balance of power yes. because they can show that they're most capable of attracting credit on good terms. And over time, it's not just that they get more influential in government circles, but it's actually that there's a set of institutional changes that begin to occur in the debtor countries, uh, like central bank independence, like uh, the growing power of the finance ministry more generally, um, and in the European context, even institutional rules to enforce budgetary discipline, uh, like constitutional mm. uh, pledges and stuff, uh, that basically begin to insulate uh, government increasingly from domestic pressures and that increasingly autonomize or, or render autonomous the role of these uh, financial policy makers within government. Right? So that's kind of like what I call the internalization of debtor discipline through the bridging role provided by domestic financial and political elites. So that would be the third mechanism. And I think it's very important to stress that one because it shows that it's, uh, debtor discipline is never purely imposed from abroad. I mean, they're very powerful actors at home within the debtor countries that play a crucial role in cementing that creditor power domestically and fulfilling that bridging role towards international funds. So people, so countries rarely default at the moment, and mm-hmm. I'm going to crudely summarise your careful articulate argument and butcher it entirely, uh-huh. <laughs> because of this credit cart- cart- cartel backed up by the IMF and the strengthening of domestic constituencies with an interest in repayment. But... These three things are not inevitable. And mm-hmm. between the 1300s and 1800s, countries were defaulting all the time. Mm-hmm. Can you talk us through that? Because that was totally novel to me. Exactly. So that's, I think, it's novel to many people. I mean, we assume that countries repay their debts and that yeah. they should repay their debts and that they've always repaid their debts. Yeah, yeah. Because that's simply what a good borrower does. Yeah. Right? But actually, this is a really recent phenomenon. And the reason that we don't remember the alternative is because we actually have to go back to the pre-war period to see what the alternative was. And um, and the reason for that is simple, is that, you know, between the Second World War and the 1980s, there was no real international lending to speak of. So as a result, there were no real international debt crises. And ever since the 80s, we've had this regime with these three mechanisms mm-hmm. that I just outlined that have enforced repayment. Mm-hmm. So that all that we've seen over the past 60 or 70 years mm-hmm. is a widespread insistence on repayment. Yeah. But actually, if you go back to the Great Depression, or if you go back to the 19th century, mm-hmm. or if you go back even way before that, you find that in every major international debt crisis, it was almost considered normal and part of the rules of the game for countries to suspend their payments. And that was the most um, often the most common response to a debt crisis, is simply for the country that finds itself in fiscal distress to impose what was called a debt moratorium. And this uh, sort of approach was so widespread in the 19th century that even you know, Lord Palmerston, when he uh, formulated his famous Palmerston Doctrine mm. um, of 1848, um, he actually accepted that the government could not be expected uh, to intervene on behalf of British bondholders in the management of international debt crises because that would induce moral hazard. Yeah. And that might make it uh, possible for you know British investors to begin speculating on foreign loans and be guaranteed a return on that. And so there was, even in the 19th century, sort of at the height of, of, of the power of finance, um, there was an assumption that it might very well be the case that a foreign government would simply suspend payments. Right? And I find, I think this historical insight is so important because it shows how we, you know, the, the moral economy of the global economy, like, and how we just take it for granted that, you know, struggling, poor economies should give this massive wealth transfer, whereas actually, previously, historically, we thought, no, that's crazy, they're yeah. poor, they're suffering, how dare we do absolutely, that? Absolutely, absolutely. I find that so important. Absolutely, I think the 1930s are really sort of indicative of, of you know, the contrast uh, mm. that is, that's there historically. Uh, because in the 1930s, the vast majority of Latin American borrowers and the vast majority of European borrowers simply suspended payments on their bond, um, on their debt to, to U.S. bondholders. And moreover, it's not just that they suspended these payments, it's also that these payment suspensions were by and large accepted mm. by the creditor powers mm. at the time. So if you look at how President Roosevelt responded to those payment suspensions, he actually went to the Bolivian president and personally apologized for what he called the super salesmanship of the Wall Street banks in the lead-up to the crisis. And he said, of course, the Latin American countries are unable to repay these onerous debts. And, you know, you find very interesting... <laughs> it's laughable today. It's, it's laughable, right? It's crazy. So you find very interesting reports, for instance, by Moody's um, in the 1930s, actually in the 1920s, warning... Uh, Wall Street investors not to exact the last pound of flesh from uh, foreign debtors because that might lead 
actually to more defaults and it might lead to worse outcomes. So there's sort of a widespread acceptance in this period of the likelihood of foreign default and even of the, well, let's call it the, the, the moral right of, um, of, of foreign borrowers to simply suspend these payments in times of crisis because ultimately there's the assumption that there are two actors involved, borrowers and lenders. And if the debt is excessive, both are equally to blame, so both should share in the burden of adjustment for that crisis. So I have a question here. Is it just that the ideology was different then, or was it that creditors faced greater difficulties in recovering their money, so maybe adjusted their moral economy accordingly? Absolutely. So that, I think, is absolutely crucial, is that it wasn't just a moral difference. I think mm. that that moral contrast is ultimately uh, underpinned, or at least mm. it goes hand in hand, yeah. with a structural change mm. in the mm. way the capitalist world economy functions. Mm. And fundamentally what we see is that these three mechanisms that I outlined mm. for the post-1980s period, mm. they were, you know, some of them were to some extent operative in the pre-war period, but they weren't nearly as effective. So you have market discipline operating, and you have it operating in very interesting ways, um, but it's not as effective as it is today. Um, but I can give you an example of how it did work. Um, and there, I'm, I mean, market discipline, not in the sense of this dispersed market logic, mm -hmm. right, but in the sense of the concentrated creditor cartel able to withhold that credit in the event of non-compliance. I mean, if we actually look at what happened is that there was widespread default in the 1930s on the loans held by the dispersed panoply of U.S. bondholders. Mm. But at the end of the 19th century, when a lot of the lending was done by the Rothschild Bank, for instance, uh, we find that actually the loans that were underwritten by Rothschild hardly ever went into default. And the reason for that is that the Rothschild Bank was able to attach to itself only debtors that really sort of were dependable in the sense that they could really be expected to repay. Mm -hmm. Uh, but moreover, the Rothschild Bank had developed itself a form of conditional lending that allowed it to manage crises by providing conditional loans to in distressed debtors and threatening to cut these distressed debtors off from all future credit altogether in the event of a default. So what Rothschild did in a way is it combined, to a certain extent, the first and second enforcement mechanisms. It fulfilled both the role of a modern-day Goldman Sachs and the role of a modern-day IMF mm. rolled into one. And thereby it was able to enforce compliance with its loans much more effectively than other banks were able to enforce compliance with their loans. So we have to make that distinction, mm. right? So there were already, even in the pre-war period, mm. uh, examples of compliance that operated through these mechanisms. Mm. But they were not as widely, uh, they were not as deeply entrenched as they mm. are today. And they were not as widely held. So there was, a there was still widespread default on other loans. Mm. For instance, made by the Barings Bank, the main competitor of the Rothschild Bank. Uh, in the 1890s, in the case of the Argentine default, which precipitated the, the bearing crisis of that decade. Um, so we can see, like, you know, these differential outcomes actually mm. occurring. There are also situations in which there is actually creditor state intervention throughout the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So it's absolutely not the case that there was no creditor state intervention whatsoever. I mean, we, see a, we actually see a quite a lot of it mm. in a military form. Um, you know, most prominent example perhaps is the invasion of Egypt. By the by, the British, uh, in the wake of a government default there, or the example of European gunboat diplomacy off the shores of Venezuela in 1902 in response to the Venezuelan crisis, or the occupation of foreign customs offices by U.S. Marines in the Caribbean and Central America in response to defaults there. So there, there is a way in which creditor states intervene, and there is a way in which some market players like the Rothschild Bank are able to enforce compliance but it's not as effective as it is today. And that's really that contrast that, that's what I'm interested mm. in. That's what I'm trying to explain. Mm. So why is it today that we find these mechanisms to be so strong? Right? And can we also talk about the 1830s? Because a bunch of Latin American governments defaulted in the 1830s. Why couldn't the creditors recover their money then? Yeah, so it's the, um, basically what happened is that the independent struggles of a number of Latin American countries in the early 1820s coincided with uh, a speculative boom on the mm. London Stock Exchange. So a lot of investors in London started um, pouring their money into these loans to newly independent Latin American countries. And it led to such a speculative craze that there was even uh, an infamous swindler by the name of Gregor McGregor who managed to convince these investors that there was a country named Poyet 
in uh, Central America, uh, some kind of mighty kingdom with uh, unimaginable riches that um, was very happy for people to invest in their government bonds. And he managed to raise over 200,000 pounds, a huge sum at the time, in investments in those uh, countries' bonds. But the thing is that he obviously completely made up the existence of that country. And investors didn't even stop to think that that might be the case, that this country might not even exist, that this guy might be a swindler, right? So that just goes to show that, you know, lenders have not been all that responsible mm -hmm. in making these loans to begin with. Uh, but that was just indicative of the kind of speculative Are you saying craze. that lenders are sometimes not responsible? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> That's definitely what we see. That was in... a blip, though, totally. Yeah. <laughs> no, and, and in the 1820s, the result of that was that a lot of these loans were, you know, too large for many of these newly independent states to repay, especially because they didn't have a large amount of exports yet to, to repay those loans with, right? Uh, so what happened is that Latin America goes into its first major international debt crisis in the 1820s. Mm. And the response to that, after a number of years of trying very hard to repay, is that almost all of them fall into default. They suspend mm. these payments. Right? Mm. So the 1820s is really the first instance of international loans made to what we now call developing countries. Prior to that, all these international loans were made between European states or between Europe and the United States. Uh, there were no real international loans to speak of to a global periphery, if we want to call it yeah, that. Yeah. Right? Uh, so, for instance, when we look at the 17th century, it's really Amsterdam is the center of the international yes. capital markets. Uh, but Amsterdam is only lending money to, you know, the Russian Tsar, to mm. the, uh, you know, to Sweden, to mm -hmm. France, mm -hmm. you know. It's not actually engaging in loans to, you know, the colonial world because those are administered by European powers, mm. largely. Uh, and other independent countries in the global south at that point do not borrow large sums of money. So what happens in the 1820s is really the beginning of a new cycle. And it's very interesting to look at that crisis because it foreshadows some of the recurring crises that we later saw in Latin America. But with a very different outcome then than today. Mm. Okay, so it's again, crudely butcher and sum up. So we're saying that maybe 200 years ago, a bunch of countries might default, and that was because the credit cartels were weaker, more dispersed, had collective action problems, and that the domestic constituencies with an interest in rate repayment were weaker. Why have those three trends changed over time? Mm -hmm. Why have those enforcement mechanisms strengthened over time? What, expla what explains those shifts, both internationally and domestically? Yeah, I think that... There we touch upon something that's really unique about the current cycle of globalization and mm. financialization. And I want to emphasize that globalization and financialization are not new per se. I no. mean, we can trace them back throughout history mm. uh, over the long durée. Mm. But there is something peculiar about this cycle of globalization and financialization that renders creditors extremely structurally powerful compared to previous periods. Okay. And um, the... the the things that I look at are basically the ones that explain the rise of these enforcement mechanisms, right? So the first is the growing concentration and centralization of finance, um, which is quite striking and quite remarkable. If you look at, you know, the amount of major banks in Europe or the United States, uh, that's shrunk significantly. Or if you look at the amount of assets held by um, major financial institutions, it's a smaller and smaller amount of financial institutions holding a larger and larger share of those assets. Uh, so that means that, you know, the provision of international credit is increasingly dominated by an ever smaller amount of private creditors. Mm. And that is what ultimately underpins the rise of what I call the creditors cartel. Mm. Right? Mm. Uh, but so that increases the self-interested need to placate that tiny minority because there exactly. is no alternative. Exactly. Um, but, you know, that development also leads to a second development. Because Can I just ask a question there? Of course. So going back to, was it a Roosevelt quote, when you said that, if the if the debt is repaid, then that could harm both parties. Has that aspect of it changed? That material spillover affecting both parties, has that aspect changed at all? Well, I mean, you could still make the argument that in many cases it's actually... Um, it, it, this regime might not be good for all creditors, mm. right? I think it's, it's most harmful for the debtors, and that's yeah. my main yeah, concern. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah, frankly yeah. care so much about the creditors. Uh, but you could make the argument that, uh, to some extent, the current mechanism is also a perverse mechanism for um, for creditors because it benefits only a very small minority of very powerful financial institutions. 
it's fundamentally their interest that it's reflected. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, so if you look, for instance, at you know Greek pension funds mm. in the debt restructuring of 2012, mm. is they took a very large cut, and they were never compensated for that uh, cut that they took. Um, and the reason that they took that cut is because there was an insistence that the debt to the Greek banks and to the European banks had to repay it in full. And what actually happened is that, of course, the European creditors got repaid in full. Mm. Uh, they had mostly divested of their holdings of Greek mm. debt prior to the 2012 debt restructuring, so they weren't really affected by mm. it that much. And either way, whatever they did restructure was already marked to market at that time, mm. so they didn't really mm. um, lose that much in terms of their prospective profits. Uh, but what we see is that the Greek banks, they took a big cut, but they were recapitalized mm. in the wake of the 2012 debt restructuring. Um, the pension funds, though, the pension funds were never compensated for the cut they took. And obviously what that means is that, you know, there have to be further pension cuts in order to prevent those pension funds from imploding completely. So what happens is that small creditors to the government who don't think of themselves as creditors to the government, but who through their pension funds are exposed to their government debt and in that sense are creditors to the government, um, are disadvantaged. Yeah. Right? So that concentration, that, that concentration of financial capital in the hands of a small amount of players systematically favors that creditors cartel at the disadvantage of the vast body of taxpayers or in this case pensioners mm. in the debtor countries yes. and we might argue even in the creditor countries because think about it what has happened over the course of the greek debt crisis or the european debt crisis for that matter is that there's been a huge displacement mm. of the debt of peripheral european states from private hands to public hands is that because of these bailouts um, the debt that was once held mostly by European banks is now mostly held by European taxpayers. And that means that if there's ever a debt restructuring of Greek debt in the future, or if Greece ever defaults in the future, the cost will be borne by European taxpayers mm -hmm. rather than by these financial institutions that made these irresponsible loans to begin with. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, you know, it's absolutely the case that this is a negative uh, mm -hmm. it has negative consequences for yes, people far that, more yeah, yeah. than just the debtor country itself. Mm -hmm. right? Um, but that would kind of be to go back to your yeah sorry question. sorry I was yeah, really interrupting right yeah yeah, 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 yeah sorry fine. sorry but that's the first sort of um, dynamic right the concentration yeah. and centralization yes. of capital okay um, in the financial sector uh, the second development is related to that and that's the increasing role of state intervention the increasing role of the international monetary fund and basically of official creditors to underwrite. Yes. these private loans. And the reason for that has to do precisely with that same concentration uh, dynamic. Because the financial sector is now dominated by such a small amount of players, these players are now all considered too big to fail. They're all systemically important to yeah. the system. If any single one of them topples, it might pull the rug from underneath the entire system. Mm. And that would, you know, destroy credit circulation. Mm. And in a highly financialized capitalist world economy, you can't do without credit circulation. I mean, credit is like the lifeblood mm. of an advanced mm. financialized capitalist mm. economy. So if you, you know, if you allow uh, a major financial institution to collapse, at least that's the argument, mm. um, that would, you know, be the equivalent of a heart attack. And mm. if you don't intervene, you know, uh, you might have, you know, uh, an, an actual cardiac arrest in mm. your, in your mm. economy. Mm. That's the argument, at least. And, and we do see that to some extent there is a, an element of, of material truth to that. Mm. Um, it might be overblown to the advantage of some of these institutions mm. because they argue, well, look, we're too big to fail, so you need to bail us out. Mm. Uh, whereas in some cases it might actually be possible to let some of them fail. Mm. But the crucial thing is that there's a lot of uncertainty involved and a lot of, in uh, we, we don't know what the mm. consequences mm. will be mm. of a financial collapse. And so to hedge their bets, governments in the creditor countries and international financial institutions have increasingly begun to fulfill the role of a lender of last resort. Mm. And that has really been institutionalized now, that mm. role. Mm. So there's the emergence of what you know, David Harvey has called a state finance nexus, where, um, or you know, someone like uh, Robert Wade would call it uh, the IMF Wall Street Treasury Complex, mm. right? Is that there's an increasing collusion between private and official creditors to work together to prevent default in order to prevent the costs of those defaults from being reflected on the financial sector yeah. and then ricocheting back onto the creditor countries in the form of a financial crisis. Yes. So that is the second sort of crucial structural change. And again, I need to emphasize there how important it is that the IMF uh, has stepped up its game in that respect mm. because that's a really novel development since the 1980s that we now completely take for granted, but that didn't exist in any other period mm. Um, mm. prior to that. 
And now the third one, the third structural change, is the one that underpins the third enforcement mechanism, mm. which is this growing credit dependence, mm. um, really across the world, mm. but also in particular in the uh, in many developing countries and many mm. peripheral countries. Mm. Um, and that, that credit dependence is really much broader than just the dependence of states on credit. I mean, mm. the states have grown more dependent on credit because, I mean, they're raising less in taxes as a result of tax competition and tax evasion. Um, they've got much larger welfare states, so they do need, you know, to borrow mm. more to, 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 to pay for those costs. Uh, but it, for me, what's really interesting is actually the growing credit dependence in the wider economy and in wider society. So if you look at households and the way in w ways in which they depend on credit, mm. I mean, that's for me what's really novel about financialization. Um, it is that, you know, it's, it's next to impossible these days to function in society if you don't have access to credit mm -hmm. because you won't be able to buy a house mm -hmm. without uh, access to a mortgage. You won't mm -hmm. be able to, um, you know, afford education for your children mm -hmm. if mm -hmm. you don't have access to, um, uh, to credit. Mm -hmm. Many people, in, especially in the United States, won't be able to access healthcare in mm -hmm. the absence of credit. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, speak, speaking of credit card debt, uh, mm -hmm. it's a huge issue as well. Mm -hmm. Many people actually depend on credit for their daily needs mm -hmm. to, to, to fulfill the basic mm -hmm. needs of life. And that dependence on credit means that people are increasingly held hostage yes. by finance. Yes. And any disturbance in international credit circulation can have huge knock-on effects mm. on the population at large. Mm. So even people who would naturally be opposed yes. to austerity and mm. in favor of default have now, you know, mm. as a result of their being held hostage by international credit markets, perhaps come to favor a more compliant approach on the international debt because they fear the consequences that a government default might have on you know, the wider economy and on their ability to attain credit. So I guess that's one way in which perhaps, and you'll tell me if I've gone wild here, domestic inequalities and government responses to them underpin international inequalities insofar as in response to wage stagnation in the US, the mm -hmm. response was not to try to raise wages or redistribution, etc., or boost jobs, but to deregulate credit and allow Absolutely. people to get easy mortgages on, you know, what's it? And as, as you know, so that response to domestic inequality gives people a vested interest in these large capital organizations. Mm. Absolutely. And I think that the ironic consequence of all of that, and that, you know, happens, of course, in situations where people are taken hostage, mm. is that you develop a kind of financial Stockholm syndrome, mm. where um, even center-left politicians who, uh, you know, historically may have been more amenable to at least the heterodox policy response, yes. to perhaps a temporary suspension of mm. payments, um, or at least towards a slightly more defined approach towards international mm -hmm. finance, that even these politicians have become increasingly subservient to the logic of international finance. So I guess this goes back to our earlier point that, you know, ideology and the moral economy doesn't exactly float freely, that we can pick and choose it if we've got these strong self-interested reasons to cave in. Absolutely. And, um, I mean, I don't want to make sort of a very simplistic, straightforward argument mm. that the ideology just derives purely yeah, yeah. from mm. uh, the material conditions, uh, because there is a sort of a dialectical back and no, forth. Sure, sure, sure. But I do, uh, I mean, absolutely, um, in the book at least, stress that structural yeah. material component, yes. which I think is absolutely central to all mm. of this. But, wait to mm. hold your horses, Jerome. Hold your horses. What about Argentina? Argentina defaulted. Doesn't that show that your theory is wrong? Well, so Argentina is a very interesting case that it has been held up historically as sort of, you know, uh, a crucial challenge mm. to the structural power of finance. Yeah, yeah. And the argument there would be, well, look, if Argentina, as, you know, as a, as a heavily indebted developing country can default on its international debts, then why can't others, mm. right? And perhaps the power of finance isn't that great and that yeah, overwhelming yeah, yeah. after all. Now, crucially, let me first say that I don't consider the power of finance to be, you know, structurally overdetermined. I don't actually think that this power is absolute. And one of the things that I try to do in the book is precisely to figure out what are the conditions under which countries might yet defy their creditors? Mm, what's what the wiggle room? Exactly. What That's is my non-technical Yeah, the room for maneuver. What is their ability to 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 actually suspend payments or to yeah. engage in different mm -hmm. types of policies, mm -hmm. right? And interestingly, I started looking at it as really a case of defiance. But interestingly, yeah. as I as I went into it and mm -hmm. I started looking at it more in depth, I discovered that the picture was a bit more complicated than that. Right. And that actually the Argentine case is not as straightforward as it would seem. So 
on the one hand, it's definitely an example of a successful popular struggle mm. uh, for default. Mm -hmm. It was, in a sense, it was, uh, you know, what Michael Toms calls a democratic default. Mm -hmm. Because the people demanded a suspension of payments to deal with the crisis in a different way from the way the government had been dealing with it for many years. Right. And that way the government was dealing with it was impoverishing the domestic population. And so there was... I mean, there was a, an enormous popular insurrection, basically, that happened in December 2001 uh, that ultimately triggered this default, that ultimately was the, the proximate cause, if you will. Because mm. um, for me, as an outsider, knowing very little about this, I would say, well, this is a case showing that structure doesn't determine what happens. Mm -hmm. You can have the structure staying exactly the same, but if you've got the people rising up, then agency can challenge the global system. Totally. But now you're going to tell me I'm wrong. Well, I mean, you're not entirely wrong, because I do think that Absolutely. I mean, that was a crucial component. And without that popular uprising and without that sort of popular democratic agency, there would have been no Argentine default. Mm. There's no doubt about it. So that was absolutely crucial. But I think it's important to also look at the context. And yes. the context is that Argentina, over the course of the crisis, um, rather than being a defiant debtor, was actually what I call an overly compliant, an, an over-compliant debtor, in the sense that it repaid much longer than even its creditors wanted it to repay for. So the crisis started in 98, more or less, 99. That's when the recession started. Uh, but by 2001, it was already becoming clear to many international players, including both the you know, uh, economists at the IMF, but also uh, the investors on, on Wall Street, that Argentina was inexorably headed towards a default because mm. it was becoming clear that the debt was unsustainable mm. and that there would need to be some kind of debt restructuring to make that debt sustainable and allow the country to grow again and then repay the rest of the debt. Mm. The problem was that the government at the time was an extremely neoliberal compliant technocratic government uh, that didn't want to default or restructure the debt for a variety of domestic reasons. Um, and that, you know, we have to explore some of the political economy and the history of, of Argentina, and I don't want to do that in too much depth. But the bottom line is that Argentina, over the course of the 90s, witnessed the rise of what I call the patria financiera, uh, the, the, the kind of like uh, financial uh, establishment that grew increasingly important in domestic policy making, mm. and that found its expression in economy minister Domingo Gavallo, who was a you know, very close to Wall Street and very sort of influential figure in international financial circus, circles, who was absolutely adamant, together with President de la Rua, that the debt had to be repaid in full. Mm. So throughout the crisis, de la Rua and Cavallo consistently insisted on repaying the debt. And the remarkable thing is that creditors were already beginning to realize way before they did that a default was inevitable. And so they began to divest. Mm. And that's what happened over the course of 2001, is that the Wall Street banks, realizing that a, a default was coming, they basically allowed the government to buy a bit more time by setting up a very notorious restructuring deal that was known as the mega canje or the mega swap. Mm. The mega swap, on the one hand, enabled Cavallo to buy himself, you know, a few extra months mm. uh, by pushing some payments further into the distance. Mm. But at the same time, it allowed the private bondholders of Argentina's debt, who were at that point mostly institutional investors in the United States, to divest of that debt and to ship it abroad to Europe. And so a lot of Argentina's debt, which had previously been concentrated on Wall Street, was over the course of 2001 migrating to European investors, uh, mostly pension funds, mm. that didn't have the kind of large research institutions that knew what they were buying into. They were buying complex products. They didn't immediately realize that how much of that was made up with Bonds, acids, right? yeah, yeah. And so they're buying into this and that meant that as a result hundreds of thousands of European pensioners, especially Italians, but mm. also some Germans, mm. also some Japanese by the way, um, ended up being invested in these RG bonds that were by that point effectively worthless. Mm. Right. So this is about half a year before the default. Mm. The, 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 the credit, creditor structure fundamentally changes. The debt becomes decentralized. So the structural conditions have changed. The structural conditions have changed and what we find now is that you know, the first enforcement mechanism, which depended, as I argue, upon the concentration. Right, of they've the debt, disbanded. 
it's 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 been effectively disarmed. Yeah, the first yeah, 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 mechanism yeah. Because the creditors cartel that previously held the debt has divested, oh, yeah. and the people who now hold the debt, these European yeah, pensioners, they're all over the show. They're all over the place, and they have no idea what they're yeah, holding, yeah, yeah. and they cannot form the kind of creditors cartel that Got you. the institutional investors mm. held. So the first enforcement mechanism breaks down. Mm. Now, what happens to the second mechanism is something very similar, because over the course of the same um, mm. period, the IMF begins to realize that hey. You know, institutional investors in the U.S. are no longer that exposed to Argentine debt. And, hey, Argentine debt is unsustainable and the default might be coming anyway. Perhaps we should start thinking about restructuring that debt or about, you know, pulling out of Argentina. Yeah. And at the same time, we have to understand that there's a very important geopolitical um, component to that as well, yeah. because there's a change in U.S. government. So you have a change in government from the Clinton administration, mm. which had been pushing massive international bailouts throughout the late 90s and early 2000s, starting in East Asia, mm. followed up by Russia, Brazil, and Turkey, mm. uh, and Argentina. Mm. Uh, but that sort of gives way to the Bush administration. Mm. And the Bush administration is, on the one hand, isolationist, uh, but at the other hand, also belligerent. Yes. So the isolationism reflects itself in an increasing opposition to the disbursement of international bailout funds through U.S. taxpayer money abroad. So there is, you know, for instance, the Meltzer Commission is set up mm. under the aegis of Meltzer, like a, a right libertarian mm. uh, economist, who argues for the abolition of the International Monetary Fund. Now, he doesn't get the abolition of the IMF, but what he does get is uh, the ability to basically cap the amount of money that the U.S. provides to the IMF. Right. So the IMF is suddenly under financial pressure. Its reserves are not being increased because of opposition in Congress, because of opposition from the White House, and at the same time, it is fundamentally overexposed to Turkey, Brazil, and Argentina. Mm -hmm. And so its leverage decreases. IMF leverage decreases. So the second enforcement mechanism already begins to weaken mm. over the course of 2001. Mm. At the same time, the U.S. government is so involved uh, with preparations to invade Iraq mm. that it doesn't want to stir a fight in Latin America with some, you know, uh, with some people there. Yeah. So it basically starts, you know, not necessarily ignoring Argentina, yeah. but actually giving them considerable leeway. And it doesn't just... So Not what you're saying here is, as the international political economy changes, as those structures change, then domestic mobilization is pushing against a more open door, so to speak. That's basically, yeah, exactly. So we have to understand the context in which the yes. popular uprising yes. unfolds yeah, in December 2001. And even more specifically, what happens in late November, so just weeks before that uprising, mm -hmm. is that the IMF after months of sort of deliberations and having realized that, you know, international finance is no longer mm. as exposed, mm. especially Wall Street, mm. as exposed to Argentine debt, it withholds a crucial credit line to the Argentine government. So basically in late November, the IMF pulls the plug. Yeah. And what that means is that Argentina is now completely cut off of international credit because it can't access international markets and it no longer gets money from the IMF. So at this point, the default is already inevitable. The question is what type what form, mm. you know, what type of default do we see? What form will that take? It could take the form of a unilateral suspension of payments, or it could take the form of a orderly restructuring of the debt. Mm. Now, Cavallo continues to insist that he doesn't want to restructure the debt. Mm. So thereby, he basically makes that unilateral payment suspension in inevitable. But he still doesn't want to do it. So... What can push him to do it? Well, the only thing that could push him to do it was that popular uprising that right. unfolds in December 2001, when the people literally oust, you know, not just... First, Cavallo, basically. Mm. Cavallo is sacrificed first. Yeah. I mean, when the people take to the streets and, um, you know, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people and, like, dozens killed in the subsequent police crackdown, I mean, this took on insurrectionary proportions uh, on, a, on a scale like that we saw in, in Egypt in 2011, mm. for instance. Um, so the first thing that La Rua, the president, does is fire Cavallo. Then the second thing, on the second day, when the people come back to the streets, De La Rua himself resigns and is famously lifted off of the, the roof of the, the presidential palace by helicopter. And at that point, Argentina circle, circulates through several presidents over the course of uh, two weeks and finally um, you know, settles upon um, a, a new sort of um, political situation in which a sort of a left Peronist coalition arises, mm. right? So the, the first president who had replaced the, the La Rua mm. uh, called for unilateral suspension of payments, which was eventually upheld by um, the president who came to power in, in, at the start of the new year mm. uh, in 2001. And uh, from there on out, basically, um, 
you know, as the Argentine economy disintegrates, the sort of antagonism between Argentina and international creditors is further accentuated. Yes. Yeah. But wait, now I want to jump over. I want yeah. to jump oceans now to go to Greece. Mm. Why didn't the exact same thing happen for Greece? Why didn't Greece default? Mm -hmm. Like, because again, we could say, uh, the creditors knew that was coming, so why didn't they do exactly the same thing, just shift their... Well, the creditors did do that. Um, and I, I think that, you know, the Greek case is absolutely fascinating, and that's precisely the question that I started mm -hmm. out this research project mm -hmm. with, actually, is because I was in Argentina when the Greek crisis broke out. I saw the news mm -hmm. on a TV screen on the streets of Buenos Aires on May Day uh, 2010, and initially when I saw the images of riots in Greece, I thought, holy shit, this is, uh, yeah. this, there's a riots breaking out here in Buenos Aires yeah. from May Day. Yeah. But it was actually Athens. And for me, the, you know, the, you know, the images were very striking because yes. they were so reminiscent of what yeah, had happened in Argentina yeah, in 2001. So I began so to think... So what was different, yeah. Yeah, what is different here? Why does Greece not default? I mean, you have a similar quasi-insurrectionary yes, popular movement emerging. Huge demand, huge demand. Huge demand to suspend payments, mm. but it doesn't happen. Mm. So why? how is Greece different from, yes. from, from, from Argentina? Now, obviously, everyone focuses on the fact that Greece is a member of the Eurozone and that that fundamentally changes things. It really does. It really does change things, but I think it's also important not to overestimate the importance of the Euro because Argentina had a very similar monetary regime in the sense that it had a currency board where one peso was exchangeable for one dollar and um, you know that peg basically functioned like a very similar thing to the Euro. Mm. It basically tied Argentina to the US mm tied them to the creditors and to international finance mm. and made the government extra reluctant to default because they didn't want to, um, after the default, mm. devalue the currency and thereby give up the currency board, mm. which was Cavallo's sort mm. of brainchild, right? So there was uh, an opposition to giving that up, uh, especially on the part of Argentine elites who felt that, you know, their integration into international finance and their protection from inflation depended upon the currency board. It's the same in Greece. So we can't really explain the Greek refusal to default purely through its monetary regime. Okay. Although it is, of course, significant that Greece couldn't fall back onto a domestic currency. Um, but I think that ultimately what happened in the Greek case is that the international context didn't change in the same way as the international context changed in the Argentine case. Mm. So the first and second enforcement mechanisms... The market discipline and the conditional yep. lending remained operative throughout the Yeah, crisis. rock solid, yeah. Rock solid. So even though the third mechanism was under strain, and already under strain in 2010, 2011 with these mass protests, and to some extent even broke down in 2015 when you have an anti-austerity coalition taking power, you know, with the coalition of the radical left, or Syriza, uh, coming to power, and Yanis Varoufakis mm. uh, becoming a very prominent um, figure in the debt negotiations. Uh, you, you could argue that there was a sort of partial breakdown of the third mechanism, mm. but it never completely broke down precisely because the first two mechanisms remained operative yeah. and there was therefore a hesitance on the part of the Greek government to, per to pursue that full rupture with international finance and international creditors. Mm. And, I mean, if we look you know, at, the, at the details of that, it fairly quickly becomes, you know clear what I mean. I mean, the debt remained highly concentrated in the Greek mm. case. It wasn't dispersed like it was yeah, yeah. in Argentina. The ownership structure did change, but rather than the debt shifting from uh, the creditors' cartel to a dispersed panoply of foreign retail investors, as happened in Argentina, mm. it was simply transferred from the creditors' cartel, the private creditors, to the European taxpayer yeah, through the bailouts. Mm. Right? Okay, so wait, I have a question. Mm -hmm. Can you give me a reason why I shouldn't book a series of counselling slots to cure my depression? Like, are you yeah. saying to me now that given these structural mechanisms of the global economy, resistance is futile? Because it only in the Argentinian, oh, you know, default only happened in the Argentinian case because the structure had changed. And that without that, resistance is just up against a brick wall. No, I don't think resistance is futile. I never think resistance is futile, but I do think that we need to understand the context in which resistance occurs. And mm. actually, this was precisely my research question. Mm. Is Why is it that, um, you know, in the Greek case, where the resistance was so strong, yeah, yeah. it still didn't lead to a unilateral suspension of payments, which, which much less resistance in the 1930s was normal and part of the rules of the game. So you didn't require a popular insurrection in the 1930s to default. Mm. You simply ran out of foreign exchange and you stopped paying. Mm. 
mm. right? You didn't even need that much popular pressure from below to do this. Um, nowadays, even with intense popular pressure from below, even with the left government in power, even with you know such widespread uh, anger and outrage at the austerity measures mm. that are being imposed, the country still repaid. Yeah. So there is something to the, part- the particular structure of the world economy today that can contain mm. that type of resistance and that mm. can can deal with it. And I want to understand what are the mechanisms. Yes. I don't want to say that resistance is futile. Mm. I want to understand the way those mechanisms work to be able to better counter them. Yeah. And the conclusion that I reach is that ultimately you cannot just make simplistic calls. I've done it myself, but I, I think you cannot make simplistic calls for a country like Greece to suspend payments because that's not a solution to the structural nature of the no, crisis sure. that we have. So if you want to really counter that power of finance, um, you will need to find ways to dismantle those three enforcement mechanisms. Yes. So that means at the structural level of the world economy, at the, at the level of the global financial architecture, you need to counter the concentration and centralization of finance capital. You need to sort of unravel that state finance nexus and you need to you know, really either reduce or completely abolish the role of the IMF as Mm. an international lender of last resort Mm. because that fundamentally favors the private creditors who are Mm. exposed Mm. to the debts and shields them from the consequences of the crises Mm. while not shielding... Would it help at all if the IMF was democratized and uh, poor countries, you know, was more accountable to low-income countries? I mean, it could potentially help. I just don't... I personally don't really see it happening. Uh, I I don't see how an organization like the IMF would be... I guess as long as you have a singular institution, then you still have that problem of uh, a singular lender of last resort. Yes, and I think that uh, in a way, like the IMF was founded upon a very technocratic mandate, yes. and that is already fundamentally of underpinning in international finance. Yes. Yeah, and um, I mean it's not necessarily bad to have a set of international institutions regulating the mm. way that international finance works. Mm. But the principle that underpins the role of the IMF ever since the 1980s is that crisis management fundamentally is about preventing suspensions of payments mm. rather than distributing the costs of adjustments equally between creditors and debtors. Mm. So the role of the IMF at the structural level is to prevent default and thereby guarantee financial stability. But in the process, what it does is it underpins the existing framework, which is this highly concentrated framework in which a very small number of players dominate the game. Um, So you need to unravel both that concentration at the market level, but you also need to fundamentally unravel that relationship between private and official creditors, Mm. which is effectively a collusion, Mm. uh, where free markets only apply to the debtors, but not to the creditors. Um, The free markets... um, logic is is definitely not extended to uh, international finance when it comes to debt repayment, for instance. You can take a huge risk in providing excessive loans like the latest 100-year bond provided to Argentina, but you'll never bear the consequences of such reckless lending because there's always the IMF to back you up Mm. in case a crisis Mm. breaks out. Right. So that's the second thing. And then the third thing is that you need to find ways to reduce that credit dependence. Yes. And that not just the credit dependence of states. Both internationally and domestically. Internationally and domestically and not just for states, but also for households. Mm -hmm. And so we need to find ways to roll back financialization. Mm -hmm. That's really what Mm -hmm. this is about. So my argument is not that, you know, you can you can resolve a crisis like Greece by forcing it to default. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would like more countries to default more often and harder because Mm -hmm. I think it would be better for everyone, mm-hmm. if there was an expectation that countries can default. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might make creditors more careful, uh, in, careful their lending. in their yeah, lending. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Uh, but I don't think that that's a solution to the structural nature of the no, problem. No, yes. So we need to tackle these three enforcement mechanisms. Mm-hmm. We need to roll back financialization. And we need to place credit provision, credit creation, credit circulation under democratic control. Mm. And that fundamentally for me is what this is about. And and that is something that you can only do through a very broad-based international alliance between the debtor and the creditor countries. Mm. And that will require much more mobilization and much more uh, construction of political power on the part of progressive and and, and radical left forces Mm. than we have at present. Thank you. So I want to to add three things that I think are really important Mm -hmm. that are slightly more sort of abstract level. I think for me, the big takeaways of the book is if you're studying, if you're studying international development, for example, and you're looking at countries in the global periphery, low and middle income countries, it's not enough just to look at resistance and social mobilization in those places without understanding how their options and capacity for their room for maneuver 
is shaped by the global political economy, mm -hmm. whether that's in terms of finance, which you look at, or global supply chains, or whatever. Absolutely. So I think it's really that te that the that synergy and that interaction. Similarly, if you look at international relations, there's no it, it doesn't help to go along with this idea of the state as a unitary actor, a singular body in IR, mm -hmm. without also recognising the domestic constituencies in both creditor and debtor countries. I think that's such a fundamental point of your book, um, to recognise that, that synergy that we've got to take on board um, the two and the, inter and the interplay there. Um, and I'd also really recommend that people read your book because it's, I think that one, another thing that I find so refreshing and so powerful about your book is that by looking historically, going beyond the past 50 years. It's such a refreshing and enlivening way for the imagination just to recognise that things have been different mm -hmm. and that people did think differently about these things. And I think so often we just go along with the flow thinking, you know, there is no alternative to mm -hmm. misquote Thatcher probably. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's important to recognise that, they're, you know, even even if the structural conditions are as they are, you know, just recognise having that room for manoeuvre in our imaginations is important to me. And I'd also like to flag up for other people writing I like the style of your book. <laughs> the, the three enforcement mechanisms, like it, it, it's a really clear structure that you look mm -hmm. at these three. Anyway, there are little tables that people will enjoy. <laughs> anyway, um, this was really fun because fun fact, Jerome and I actually did our masters together at the LSE at the same time. So this is a sort of reunion of sorts. Um, and it was a great pleasure to talk to you and everyone should get the book. Thank you so much. All right. I really enjoyed that. Thank you so much. Awesome.